the issue that she seemed to be wrestling with was her uncle had abdicated the throne and uh, was now estranged from the family living in France with Mrs. Simpson and uh, had fraternized with the Nazis. And I think Elizabeth was aware of this uh, rupture within the family and wrestling with the whole issue of forgiveness and reconciliation and wanted to talk a little bit more with uh, Billy Graham about that. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me in studio, we have Pastor Brian McVitie, formerly a rector in the Anglican Network in Canada and also author of the book Facing Cancer. Now, Brian, as a pastor, you're not going to be short on words for this, are you? Uh, well, we'll see. Depends on how hard your questions are. <laughs> I'll do my best. So Queen Elizabeth II, 96 years of age, uh, it's a solemn time across this country. We're mourning, we're in the lead up to her funeral. What would be your first memories of her? Well, I remember going to a public school and her picture was framed and in every classroom in our elementary school. And as far as I can remember, for morning exercises, we sang God Save the Queen, followed by the Lord's Prayer. I don't think it was till some years later that we started singing O Canada. So even then we were singing God Save the Queen. Any personal interactions with her when she came to Canada or kind of at a close distance? No, I have to refer to my my wife. So uh, my wife has this memory of being taken with her sister, her mother. They drove up to the Queen and Prince Philip's visit to Simcoe County, which I think was in Penetang. The uh, Queen and the Prince were going through Canada on the train and stopped in uh, Penetang. And my wife was there and uh, mother and sister to see the Queen and wave to her. So that's her um, uh, impact of the Queen being in Canada. How close would that have been? I don't know how close they got. No, I'm not sure. But within eyesight, like... Oh, yes, they could see the the queen. Yeah, for sure. That's wonderful. Hmm. And did you always have a positive perception of the queen, would you say? Well, I think so. I can't say that she was, you know, a leading light in my life, but uh, I would have a a positive sense about her and what she represented. Yeah, so many visits, 22 more than any other country... And someone who, like yourself, subscribes to the Anglican tradition and a devout Christian. So where would this have began? Well, I don't, I mean, I'm not a confidant of the Queen, (laughs) so I have to go from published sources. But um, certainly it seems that that this has been passed down from generation to generation. And uh, I think it was her mother who said that every night she knelt down at her bedside and said her prayers. We have every expectation that Queen Elizabeth II, for the whole of her life, every night knelt down by her bed and said her prayers. So there's every evidence that way that uh, she had a personal faith that uh, went back to early childhood. But I think in terms of a a living faith and um, sort of a conscious faith and maybe even being saved— I think we have to turn to Billy Graham's uh, visit to uh, England in the uh, mid-1950s. So what transpires there? Billy Graham comes to London. Obviously, it's a spectacle. But is the Queen even on location? No. So, uh, I mean, she, she for security reasons and protocols, she was not present. But apparently, all of his addresses were broadcast live over the radio, and apparently she was uh, listening to them. Hmm. And what did she find? Why did she tune in with curiosity that you would go as far to say that this had a big influence on her faith? 
Well, because she then uh, followed up, she was uh, quite interested in Billy Graham and what he represented and what he was saying and preaching about the gospel. So she invited him to come to Windsor Castle, and they had, uh, as I understand it, a private conversation. And then she invited him to preach at Windsor Castle Chapel, so her own chapel. So he was invited to uh, preach there. Was there any personal significance to what she might have been wrestling with at the time that would prompt her to have such appreciation for Billy Graham, not just speaking the message of God's love, but doing so in her own life? Well, Billy Graham uh, mentions this in his own biography, uh, Just As I Am, and he talks about it that something was certainly stirring in her life. And I think it's from what he had to say that one of the issues that she was wrestling with was the whole issue of forgiveness. And I guess this had come up in uh, some of Billy Graham's sermons in London. And the issue that she seemed to be wrestling with was her uncle had abdicated the throne and uh, was now estranged from the family living in France with Mrs. Simpson and uh, had fraternized with the Nazis. And I think Elizabeth was aware of this uh, rupture within the family and wrestling with the whole issue of forgiveness and reconciliation and wanted to talk a little bit more with uh, Billy Graham about that. And is this something that you think and Billy Graham would say drew her closer to God? Oh, very much so. Yeah. So I think there's every evidence that this was a, a fresh beginning or a renewal in her own personal faith, being with him, hearing him. I don't know if they had prayers together, but quite likely that they did. And then this began a lifelong friendship between herself and Billy Graham. So he came back to England uh, several times and uh, visited with the Queen and was invited uh, a couple of times more to uh, preach in Windsor Castle then when she was over to the United States, apparently they met up together. Apparently, in addition to her official state visits to the United States, she would fly in informally or whatever the word is to Kentucky to look at horses. Uh, a big passion of hers was mm-hmm. horses. So she would go to Kentucky to look at horses. And that's not that far from where Billy Graham lived. And when available, they would get together. Interesting. And then the other little point, the re- the reason I mentioned that the, every indication that this was a revival of her own faith and an example of her faith, the first time that Billy Graham preached at Windsor Castle afterwards at lunch, he said to her that he was debating as to which text he would choose for his sermon, and he almost preached on uh, John chapter 5, which is the healing of the lame man by the pool. And the queen responded, oh, that's my favorite biblical account. So that's some indication that she was steeped in the scriptures. And, um, you know, that was apparently her favorite episode from Jesus's life. Interesting. Wow. And then when it comes to her role within the formal Anglican church, she is the head of it. She was the head of it. Yes. uh, Nominally, she's head of the uh, Anglican Communion, Church of England, Anglican churches around the world. So that is her role, and that goes back to King Henry VIII. So every sovereign has assumed that role. And I know to say that she, as as a secular person, is head of a church, Church of England, Anglican Church. I know to Canadian ears or American ears, that sounds so strange as to why you would have that. Mm -hmm. But the British system is entirely different. Here in North America, we think of a separation of church and state, We think that's a good thing to have, and maybe it is, but it's not the situation in England. So the Queen is head of the Church of England, but 
the whole point of that, of the way the government, the ruling authorities are set up in Great Britain, is that there is a unity between the church, the king or the queen, and the prime minister. So latterly, there's a new prime minister in Britain. She had to go to the queen to be officially installed or welcomed into her role. The queen and the prime minister choose the Archbishop of Canterbury. We're going to be having a coronation service soon for King Charles III. The Archbishop of Canterbury will crown him. So between the Queen, the Prime Minister, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, you have a unity for the nation. And this was the idea behind uh, the way that um, this leadership is set up in Great Britain. Hmm. And as far as what this looks like for any Anglican church outside of Great Britain, how does she exercise power towards that denomination, or does she? She doesn't really. It's largely symbolic, but within our liturgy, we pray for the Queen of the King, so it's built into our liturgy. So this is all following uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where we're exhorted to pray for those in authority, including kings. So it's built into our liturgy that we would pray for the Queen, and we would pray for the Prime Minister and those in authority with us. And I think that's a good thing for every church to do, and it certainly follows uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Hmm. Now, I do find it interesting, Pastor Brian, some of the history as to how the Church of England began. Not always the most pleasant of things, including a divorce that would differentiate them from the Catholic Church. Could you elaborate on this a little bit? So we go back to the Reformation. We've got Martin Luther standing up, translating the Bible into the vernacular, making the Bible available to every person. Martin Luther himself is a monk. He goes to Rome. He's totally disgusted at uh, what he sees in Rome and the corruption in Rome and reading the Bible and translating it, and particularly Romans. He decides that um, there has to be reform in the Roman Catholic Church. He stands up. There are the 95 theses that he nails to the church door. That starts the Reformation. He did not intend to start a new denomination, but he was basically thrown out. So all of Europe now is fermenting with the Reformation. This teaching comes over to England. There are early reformers like Tyndale and Cloverdale and um, attempts to translate the Bible into English. King Henry is having problems with the Pope, particularly over marriage relationships and a divorce. So that's a little bit embarrassing. But anyway, he wants to be able to marry and he wants uh, unity within England. And so he separates the church in England from the Pope and the jurisdiction of the Pope, and that's how the Church of England is formed. And so he did divorce his first wife and he was able to marry again. Right, yes. And the reason for doing that, we think that that's so uh, flippant, but it was very important for him. England had gone through wars in the past. It was very important for him to have an heir, ideally a, a male heir, and for the stability and the future of the nation. And so... That was uh, at least part of his motivation for a new wife. And would you think this would be reflective of where the country is today, more Protestant than Catholic? Well, I'm not so sure to tell you the truth. Uh, With immigration, uh, I'm not sure. I think there are more practicing Catholics in England now than there are practicing Anglicans. You think so? Yeah. I recall when I was in the UK about six or seven years ago and I was being toured through Oxford University and the different colleges and all of them descending from Protestant denominations, but there was one college that was Catholic. And I remember the tour guide pointing out that the gates were closed and they would not open 
until the country became Catholic again. Oh, really? Yeah, it made me think that lines were maybe a little deeper between Protestants and Catholics in the UK even to this day. Now, when it comes to the Queen in her role as on the throne, it's documented that she did progress some of the regiments that were in practice, and one of them being that if someone in the monarchy married a Catholic, they were still qualified in the line of succession. Uh, what kind of reaction did that draw? I don't remember that having much of a, of a reaction, and I, I think it also went through Parliament, so I think it was uh, you know voted on by Parliament. And I think this was 2015, and I think there was some looking ahead to William and uh, his choosing a, a wife and recognizing the reality of life in Great Britain and the world today that uh, if he were to marry a Catholic, it was going to be no big deal. Mm. And maybe that goes back to what you were saying about there being more Catholics. But I think at the same time, they also changed the succession so that the crown would go to the firstborn, whether that was a daughter or a son. Mm -hmm. So I think that was done at the same time as well, anticipating that if William got married and then had children, if William's eldest happened to be a girl, then she would be first in line for the throne. Speaking of these sometimes deep lines between denominations, Prince Philip himself was initially Greek Orthodox, and that wasn't necessarily in line with what the royal family had wanted at the time. What was his faith journey like? Yeah, so it's fascinating. So it's a very different uh, faith journey for Prince uh, Philip. So he was born in uh, Greece, but he only lived there. He and his parents were sent into exile, I think. I forget the details, but he only lived in Greece for about 18 months, but he was baptized uh, Greek Orthodox, came to England, and then he was in the Royal Navy. So actually, most of his life, he through school, chapel services, he had attended Anglican churches, so he was more Anglican, actually, in practice than he was uh, Greek Orthodox. And then what I've read is that when they married, with the view that she was going to be a queen, he was received into the uh, Church of England, the Anglican Church at that time. What indications were there of his personal faith? Was he someone who was biblically literate from what you've gathered? Well, I think he was very well educated. Now, it's interesting, his mother, so his mother— uh, sometime, I think their marriage fell apart, but his mother ended up becoming a nun. She stayed in Greece. She uh, hid Jews during the Second World War, uh, was very well regarded, and was invited to Israel as one of the sort of righteous Gentiles that was being uh, honored for this. So his mother is a fascinating person and a, a deeply deep person of faith. So that was part of his background and his influence. And uh, if you believe what you saw in the Netflix series, The Crown, when she came to live with them in Buckingham Palace, they actually set up a little chapel for her so that she could continue on with her own devotions and her worship. But for Prince uh, Philip, I'm not sure when they got married or, you know, he was attending Anglican churches through his uh, childhood and young adult years, but he seems to have had a midlife crisis, I don't know, in his 40s. And uh, reached out to uh, a clergyman that he knew and some other men friends that he had. And they formed a retreat house. They set up a retreat house and would have these um, retreat gatherings, weekends, uh, talk about issues of faith, challenges that these guys were facing, sort of some uh, men's ministry. 
And this seems to have had it been the occasion for a real rebirth and renewal of his own personal faith. Hmm. Did the fact that they were devout Christians, did that, I know you said earlier that it was more symbolic, their role in the Anglican Church, but did that help fuel the denomination that you've been in a little bit? Like, did it, they're, they're, just, they're, so, they're so in the limelight, like, was it an encouragement to Anglicans? I think it is. You just sort of take it for granted, I would say. She was always very circumspect on what she had to say. So it's not that she was giving motivational speeches. Mm -hmm. But I think wherever she went in the world, she would attend church on a Sunday morning. And so was, you know, setting that example. Beyond that, I would say that she was pretty circumspect. Pastor Brian, you touched on how the Reformation took place and, and the birth of the Anglican Church. But if we could just dig into some of the defining features of this denomination even today, I mean, the Book of Common Prayer is still held so high, and it's known that people of Anglican denomination are, are real prayer warriors. And the Queen, uh, you said earlier, every single night. Could you elaborate on why prayer is so important in this denomination, and what else would you uh, highlight as being like Anglican-focused? Well, it does go back to the the founding, you know, Henry VIII, uh, like him or love him. He was a, an odd person, but was certainly a, a person of faith. And he was the one who commissioned the first English Bible. So we might think that the King James Bible was the first English Bible, but it was not. So Henry VIII, with the Reformation, uh, commissioned the uh, first English Bible. It was called the Great Bible. Used a lot of William Tyndale's translation in it. And Henry VIII mandated that every parish had to buy the Great Bible, have it in the church and available for the people to read. And books were not widely published at this time, so but there was a big demand to be able to read the Bible for yourself, and in this case, to be able to read it in English. So he was a real Bible person, and part of his motivation was unity for the nation. He wanted everybody on the same page. And to have a unified nation under a king meant also that you had a unified faith for the whole nation, and that was going to be the Church of England. So he was advocating that. So Catholicism was outlawed. And the prayer book just standardized worship. So he did not write the prayer book, but he certainly endorsed it. Cramner wrote most of it. And it was so that the prayer book enabled an authorized liturgy, biblical worship on a Sunday morning. There was a big emphasis on, on training and educating the clergy, which should not be the case for the Catholics. So this ensured that in every parish, there would be an ordered liturgy and prayers that were laid out, that were biblical and uh, theologically sound, and that in every parish they would be used. And the other thing we might not realize is that the prayer book also lays out daily devotions. So morning prayer, evening prayer, with scripture readings that would take you through the Bible and the Psalms in a year. So all of that is laid out. So Sunday morning worship, Sunday worship, morning and evening, and daily prayers, morning and evening as well, all laid out in the prayer book. So Spurgeon just copied the Book of Common Prayer, really. Well, maybe. It has its, its <laughs> origins. Maybe that's the source. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so so fascinating. What would you say in particular drew you to this denomination? Well, I was born into it. So I, like many of us, we've, we, you know, born into a denomination, but I certainly embraced it and um, a little bit of the traditions, a little bit of the freedom, focus on prayer, devotion, systematic reading uh, through the, the scriptures, following the liturgy, all of that uh, had a real appeal to me. Hmm. 
And in closing, Pastor Brian, if we could just broaden this out for Queen Elizabeth's impact here in Canada, even among the divide that's grown towards whether Canada should still bow to the monarchy in, in Britain, many people positive reactions to her. But I did read in the Globe this really fascinating quote, the longer she reigned, the more hereditary power eroded, but her influence grew. So in spite of kind of this perception that maybe we're moving on from this, her influence grew. Would you think that that quote testifies to the life that she was in, this intersection of the crown losing a bit of power, but her becoming larger than life? Well, I think it does because, you know, she is basically under the authority of parliament. So in terms of raw power, there's not a lot that she or now King Charles can do themselves, but they have huge influence. And I think she realized that and used that in many positive ways. And we hope that King Charles will do the same. Um, One of the... um, Irish bishops referred to her as the grandmother of the nation. And I mm-hmm. think that captures it well, that she was a stable presence. She was a, a good role model. She was graceful in all her doings. And she embodies uh, faith, family, and service. You know, we think that, you know, they live a, a life of luxury and privilege, and they probably do. But there are many restrictions on their life as well. And I think hers could be characterized by service. Hmm. And what is your outlook on the future of King Charles? I don't know. Uh, One newspaper article said that as he is crowned, it will change him. So we've certainly seen that through history, that a prince coming to the throne, maybe not have the best reputation, but once they are crowned, they rise to the occasion and being crowned seems to bring out the best in them. So I'm hopeful and prayerful that this will be the case with uh, King Charles III. We will see what the future holds then. Pastor Brian McVitie, a rector in the Anglican Network in Canada for decades and the author of the book, Facing Cancer. Appreciate your time. Thank you, David. Great to be with you. And if you want to read up any more on the history of the Anglican denomination and you want links to what we talked about in relation to the Queen, you can find that all at the show notes at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. The mRNA vaccine may not be in the news to the extent that it was at the height of the pandemic. However, where they may be breaking new ground now is using the science to fight other diseases. Igar Sesteri is a researcher at McGill University who is testing to see if the mRNA could be used to help fight off a disease that originated in his home country of Brazil. The fact is, prediction of mRNA is very easy. Production of a protein is a lot more complicated. So you have to have an organism to produce a protein for you. And that would be other bacteria, yeast, another organism that you produce that in large amounts. You have to purify the protein so that there are many steps involved. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. <laughs>